Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. I want to apologize if you're new to our church that I didn't introduce myself. My name is Dave, and it's my privilege to serve as lead pastor here at Harvest. I've been serving in that capacity for over 20 years. And, um, you know, the beautiful thing about when God is at work in something is that no matter how long you're at it, you don't get sick of it. You actually can grow more in love with something and someone over the passing of years if God's behind it. We've wrapped up our series on prayer, and we've got this one odd week right now between things where I just needed to come up with a sermon, and I I was praying for the last couple weeks about what it is that God is wanting me to say to our church, and uh, I believe that he's leaving to something that is an important conviction, something that we need to hear, some of us really need to hear, but this is also one of those messages that the people who perhaps need to hear it most will feel the most instinctive desire to reject it. Just the way it is sometimes, is that sometimes the word we most need to hear is the very word we don't want to hear. I've been there, and my wife has the unenviable job of saying a lot of those things to me. I am amazed at how insightful she is with respect to me. Maybe not in everything else in the world, but with me, this woman has a PhD in Davidology, And she says things to me that I don't usually want to hear at the time, but as I reflect, I had to hear them. And I thank God that he's raised up someone in my life from whom I can receive those words. So I want to talk about the the title of the message, if you can get that first slide up, there's living in the light. Living in the light. I like this picture. I liked it so much that I actually paid for it because I really like this picture. There's something hopeful about being in a cave in a dark place, but seeing light outside, and you're just right there at the edge of it. And I don't know about you, but looking at this picture, everyone in this room has one of two responses. Some of you are thinking, I want to go back in. (laughs) It seems way too wide open out there. It seems scary and dangerous, and I want to stay back in this safe cave where I know where all the walls are. I know what's behind me, and I'm going to stay right here. Others of you are like, i got to get out there right now. I'm tired of being in this cave. I've got to get out there where the sun is shining and the clouds are floating in the sky. I'm not going to make you raise your hand to tell me which of those responses this picture produces in you, but I know for one, I personally want to run, and there might even be a cliff at the end of that. I don't care. I just want to run out to where that light is. You know, hide-and-seek is one of the most enduring childhood games. I'm a, I don't know who invented it or how long. i got to imagine it's as old as humanity. I'm sure the first kid was like, hey, I'm going to hide and see if people can find me. It seems like such a common, universal human drive to want to hide and see if people can find you. And my kids are playing it. I grew up playing it. And here's the one thing I've learned about it is I think most people prefer to be the hider than the seeker. Hiding is exciting. It feels dangerous. It feels sneaky. Being the seeker feels like you're at work. You're like, oh, where are these idiots? And you're like looking for them. 
And it's a lot of, I've never liked being the seeker, but I've always loved being the hider, especially when I find the perfect hiding place. And the best hiding places are those that are pretty out in the open, but just hidden enough that you're giggling to yourself because you can hear these people going, I don't know where everybody is. Where is this guy? And they're walking five inches past you and have no idea where you are. There's something exhilarating about hiding in the perfect spot. When I was in high school, a bunch of us attended a party that was thrown for Halloween at this large old we thought it was a haunted mansion. We, don't, we, we weren't even sure what the story was with this house, but it was this massive old house that was unoccupied, and we got access to it for a Halloween party. So we decided, hey, let's act like kids, and let's play a game of hide-and-seek. Well, I was a little crazy back then, and I, I decided I'm going to hide in the scariest part of the house. There was this, this uh, third-floor landing in this house that led up to this really dark area where there was no light switches, and it was really creepy, and I decided nobody's going to want to come up here. So I went to the third floor landing, and I found a bay window recessed in, into the wall, and there was this heavy red velvet curtain. So I hid behind that, and I'm just sitting there like no one's going to come up here. And it was true. I could hear the sounds of the party going on downstairs. The game was progressing nicely. One dummy after another's getting found, and I knew I was the last man standing. But I'd hidden a little too well. And after about 10 minutes, what I realized was the game was over, the party was resuming, and I'd been forgotten. I hid so well that people forgot I was there, and the world just kept going on without me. And there I was in my cocoon in a place I once thought was such a treasured, awesome, safe place to hide, and I missed the world. Yeah, I was by myself. But I think the point of hide-and-seek is not to be hidden forever. Every hider longs to be found. Every hider wants to be found and to rejoin the world at some point. And when they forget to find you, it hurts, man. I was like, dude, I won the game, but you all act like it doesn't even matter. I was up there by myself. And then I actually started to get scared, too, because I was by myself on the third floor landing. I think the problem with hiding is that at first it feels safe. It could even feel exciting. But if you hide too well, you're going to miss out on a lot of things. I'm saying this because light and darkness is one of the most common and powerful motifs in the Bible to describe the spiritual realm. Every time light and darkness is mentioned in Scripture... God comes out on the side of light. So if I were to ask God the same question, when you see that picture, God, what do you want people to feel? Every single time, God would say to us, I want them to run into the light. Every time light and darkness is mentioned in Scripture, God always comes down on the side of light rather than dark. So much so, that any time we talk about darkness, we're presuming we're talking about the enemy of God, not God himself. Just think about how you instinctively feel about light versus darkness. I've met a whole lot of kids who are afraid of a well-lit basement, okay? I mean, darkness is, there's just something 
generally negative in most people's minds about the dark. We, we comfort each other with words like, hey, there's light at the end of your tunnel. No one says, hey, aren't you glad there's a bunch of tunnel before that light at the end? We think about darkness as a thing maybe we are stuck in or must pass through, but not as something we should desire and, and want to stay in. This time of year when some of you are deeply affected by the weather and stuff, but probably the worst part of it is the sun goes down before dinner. Isn't that just one of the... I, I didn't used to be as affected by it. I used to look down my nose at those of you who were, but now it's happening to me. I'm like, why is it so dark so early? I think it's because we started this Fitbit campaign, and I'm walking a lot more, but now I have to walk in the dark almost all the time. And so around this time of year, we long for those days of summer where daylight lasts well into the evening. Do you remember those days when it was 9.30 and you could still play Frisbee outside? I, I long for those days. Darkness and light can mean a lot of things as a metaphor in Scripture. Uh, probably most commonplace is evil versus goodness, sin versus righteousness. But what I want to focus in on today is that often darkness is a metaphor for hiddenness or ignorance or deception or denial. That darkness is about those things which we either pretend we don't know or want to cover up in hiddenness. And light symbolizes truth, that God shines in those hidden places to say, it is not good for you to live in that place of hiddenness. You are children of light. You are children of the day. Our lives are meant to be lived right there, out in the open, in the light of truth. That's a very undeniable and trustworthy statement coming out of Scripture is that we who follow Jesus are not meant to stay in hiding. Sometimes it is a necessary survival mechanism that we go into hiding for a season. But we are not meant to live in that place, shut out from others. And if that's where you find yourself, then I believe God today wants to challenge you to take your first steps to come out of that cave. It is not where the people of God belong. I believe God brings light, the light of truth and even exposure into the darkness of our hiding and even our deception through a number of ways. And I want to talk about some of those ways. I I believe the most important and primary way that he invades the darkness in our lives with the light of truth is his word. I've said this before, but I want this to become something you think of often, so I'll, I'll just repeat it again. Before we can seek out what God is saying to each of us, we need to seek out what God has already said to all of us. I find that one of the most common things that happens today in churches is people are obsessing over what God wants to say to me, but at the same time, they've really cut out what God has said to everyone through Scripture. They've cut that out of their lives in any meaningful way. So people who don't know what God has said to all of humanity for thousands of years are now begging God to tell them a tailored message just for them in this moment in time and space. Now here's the thing. I believe God does speak to individuals. I believe God does reveal the truth specifically to one person at a time through prayer, through prophetic utterance, through all kinds of circumstances, through friends. He does still speak to each of us. 
But far more important than that particular message, which is not 100% reliable, is that the most reliable way God has spoken to humanity is through his word. It's through his word. And if you want to know the truth about this world, about what's happening in your life, about those other people that are hurting you, if you want to know the truth even about your own heart and your own mind, the best place to turn consistently to learn that is the Bible. You know, I think people have a really wrong idea about the Bible, that it's this old history book or it's a collection of wise moral sayings. I'm amazed how often God has counseled me more insightfully through the Bible than through the words of another person. There have been times where I'm just sitting there with the Bible and I'm like, you're such an idiot. How could you have been so blind to this for so long? And what I love about when God does that through his word is he's more patient and more gracious and he's more powerful and insightful than anybody else I know. Here's the other wonderful, by the way, do you remember Psalm 119, 105? It's a very well-known verse. Many of us learned this in Sunday school as kids. King David gives this really beautiful metaphor for what the Bible is to us. He said, it's like a, a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. Now, in our overlit, well-illuminated modern world, that doesn't mean much to us. But I've been in parts of the world where I've had to walk around at night, and it is dangerous to walk about in the dark without a lamp. It could be a matter of life or death, not only because you don't know what the land looks like, but you don't know where your own feet are. And uh, this is a beautiful metaphor for, for understanding that through God's word, he lights things up that we need to see. Some of us are in a fog of, of confusion or indecision because we're not exactly sure what lies ahead. We're not even sure what we really want inside. Sometimes people challenge us. What is it you want? Why are you so upset? What's going on with you? And we're just like, I don't know. I just know I'm upset or I'm afraid or I'm insecure or I'm angry, but I'm not really sure all the reasons why. Sure, I could lazily point to people I'm ticked off at, but existentially, fundamentally, why am I like this? I don't know. Some of you in that place right now, you don't have to raise your hand, but are some of you in that place... Are some of you living with someone in that place right now? It's not easy. The answers are not primarily going to be found in the world out there or coming out of the mouths of other people. The answer will primarily come from the word of God, the mouth of God himself. And when we cut off the Bible from our hearts and our minds, what stands to reason that our view, our worldview, our perspective is going to become less and less like God's and more and more just like us in the flesh. Here's a beautiful thing about when God turns on the lamp of truth from his word is as we let the word of God minister to us, we don't just learn about God and the world around us. We learn a lot about ourselves, too. Here's another familiar passage that I think I've glossed over a lot of times. But listen carefully to what it says. In Hebrews 4, verse 12, this is a New Living Translation. I think it's a very capable rendering of this. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. Now listen to this. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. 
I can't tell you how many times I've been in a counseling meeting where I want this person to be able to see, to recognize, admit, there's a desire, a thought, something deep inside of you that has burrowed in and is controlling everything you feel and do. The way you act with others, the way you experience every day when you wake up, it's all driven by an innermost thought or desire, and you're not naming it. And no matter what I do, there have been times when I've just, I've been frustrated because I can't get the person to see something. But the Word of God promises within itself that it has such power, it can do that. It can expose for us, reveal to us, our innermost thoughts and desires. And if I ask you what really drives you, what makes you tick, I'm sure you have a very ready answer for the whole world, maybe even for yourself. Some of you might say, you know what? What drives me is I want to live life to the full. Life's too short to mess around. I want to just bite it, get all the juice out of it. I just want to live. That's my driving force. Others say, I just want to be comfortable. I want... You have an answer. Everybody has a quick answer for this question. But is it the true answer? Is it really the truth about you? I don't know how we find something like that out apart from the word of God examining us. So I want to really encourage you, the primary place through which God's light crashes into the darkness, the hiddenness of our lives, is through the Bible. But, and as some of you might lament, he also happens to use his people. Not our, not our favorite thing, okay? I'll admit it. When someone says, hey, I really, can I, can I just talk to you for a minute? I, I need to say something to you. I think it's general, isn't it? Like, it's universal. Very few people go, oh, goody, I'm so excited. Like, most people go, what do I do? Whenever I ask people for an appointment, whenever it's not them asking me, but I'm like, hey, can we get together? I just want to connect with you and talk. Immediately, I get an email. Uh, what's this about? What, what, what do I do? I'm like, nothing. Could it just be that I want to know you? I like you. I just want to sit with you and talk. But I understand it because we're all afraid that, and this is, this is kind of revealing, isn't it? We all know something is hidden, or we may have blind spots. We may have hurt people without even intending to. And when someone is going to talk to us, it's usually to complain about something. Oh, brother, they want to talk. There's this wonderful story from the life of King David recorded for us in 2 Samuel 12. You may be familiar with the backstory. David was stretching his legs and looking out over his city from the rooftop of his palace when he saw this beautiful woman taking a bath on her rooftop. Seems to me a terrible idea to put your bathtub on the roof of your house. But that's what they did. And so there she is bathing. Her name was Bathsheba, and he was like, so he, he was the king. He has all power. He summoned her to the palace, and he lay with her. And he got her pregnant, and he realized, oh, darn it. Not right behavior for the king of Israel. And so, of course, similar to many people, his first instinct is, i got to cover my tracks. Bathsheba happened, unfortunately, to be married to one of his most faithful soldiers, a man named Uriah. And so to cover his tracks, David started a conspiracy in which he would send Uriah Bathsheba's husband, into the thick of battle, and just when the enemy was swarming against, he told all his fellow soldiers to withdraw so that Uriah would get killed in battle. 
And this way, it would be murder through conspiracy, but it would just look like the dude died in battle, and everyone would say he was a national hero. He fought valiantly, he died well, and on and on. A perfect conspiracy if you like dishonesty, if you're a big fan of dishonesty. This is masterpiece dishonesty. So he does it, and everyone buries Uriah with full military honors. They grieve for the widow Bathsheba, assuming, and by the way, part of that plot was he had Uriah come home on furlough, hoping that maybe he would sleep with his wife, and then the baby, he would, everyone would assume was his. It was just a terrible plan all along. But so far, David has dodged a bullet. Now, I'm sure David could sense that some of his top officers who knew about the plot were looking at him sideways, like their respect for him, their trust in him was eroding. And he was probably irritated by that. He might have noticed that his wives were not too happy about all of this, that there were whispers in the market whenever Bathsheba and David walked around. He was probably irked by a lot of the things that were artifacts, results of his behavior or conduct. But to this point, and this is what what he did was, can we all admit it, what he did was really bad. Is anyone confused about that? You have an affair with someone to get their spouse killed? That's really bad. Has anyone in this room done something worse than that? <laughs> I think you're going to raise your hand. I think probably not. And yet, even so, David is blind to what he's done. That amazes me. That you could do something so heinous and still not really have a clue as to how seriously demented you've become. How dark your heart actually is. So what God does is he sends a prophet named Nathan, and I love the way this story plays out. Nathan goes, hey, King David, let me tell you the story. And I don't know if he plays it off as an actual story or an allegory, but he goes, hey, there were two guys who lived in the same town, a rich man and a poor man. Now, this rich man had vast herds of cattle and sheep. He was, he was loaded, but the poor man had one sheep, a little lamb that he treasured above all things. He raised this lamb like his own children. It slept in the bed with them. It was like a pet. Well, one day the rich man had a house guest coming from out of town, and instead of killing one of his many cattle or sheep for a meal, he goes to the poor man's house, steals the one precious lamb, and slaughters it and offers it to his guest, oblivious to the injustice of what he's done. This is is what Samuel records as David's reaction to this story. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely, don't you love how the nobility that comes out of some people who are really in dark places, they love to strike such a noble pose. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. What he's saying really between the lines is, if this is a real story and I'm the king of Israel, the dude's dead. No way he lives after that. And he is fuming, and the anger is genuine, and Nathan's just giggling over there. And finally, he's like, this dude's got to get that. He's got to connect the dots eventually, but he doesn't. David's getting angrier and angrier, and finally, Nathan goes, dude, you are that man. I'm not telling a story. I'm telling your story. That guy you're so upset about is you. You did the exact thing which you condemn. And all the loathing you aim at others is actually aimed at yourself too. 
Do you not realize that you have been blind to your own sin for a very long time? I think it's beautiful that so often God can use another person to reveal to us something about ourselves that we actually didn't know. In 1955, two American psychologists developed something called the Johari window. Have any of you seen this before? So it's a heuristic device meant to help people explore how they understand themselves and how they relate to the world around them. And basically it says, there are things that you know for yourself and that you don't know about yourself. And then on this side of it, there are things... Does this work? Uh, The laser thing doesn't... Okay. On this side, there are things that other people know about you, and then there are things that other people don't know about you. So you see how this quadrant works. What's interesting to me is only one out of the four quadrants represents life lived out in the open, in the light of truth. That white quadrant is where we should be living most of the time, where what you know about, about me and what I know about me pretty much is out there. I'm an open book. I don't have a whole lot hidden away. This is the part down here that is about deception. It's what I know about myself, but I don't allow others to know. I'm guarding that because you don't get to know this about me. You don't get to know that I'm actually terrified every time I do my job. I'm scared to death they're going to discover I don't know what I'm doing. You don't know that I'm very unhappy where I am in this life. You don't know that I'm... And so there are these things we hide away partly because we know them, but we can't face them. And we certainly don't want the world to know them and reject us for it. But the part I think other people help us the most in is in that green quadrant. And that part that everybody else knows, but I don't know about me. Somebody said to me recently when I was playing basketball, Dave, it seems like it's really important to you that the rest of us know you're old, but you're still willing to run hard. It seems like it's not just like part of you, but it seems almost epically important to you that we know this about you. I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, yeah, you don't know? You mention it all the time. I'm like, I do? And then I started playing back the tape. I'm like, oh, my Lord. I do this all the time. I highlight, I emphasize how old I am, yet how hard I'm trying to run, as if I am trying to dodge my own mortality through sheer willpower. And I thought maybe... That's just my little internal journey. What I didn't realize is all 15 guys that play basketball with every week are going, there he goes again. He's proving something right now. He's not even playing basketball anymore. He's just proving something. He's running from the grave. Do you realize that very often God will use other people to introduce you to yourself? I don't know why he chooses to do that. I don't always enjoy that process, but it's true. We have blind spots, things that others see that we won't allow ourselves to see about us, the truth about me. I shared a fairly humbling, and I I was kind of uncomfortable actually sharing that. Please don't use it against me, because I am very sensitive to all that, but I know some of you are going to use it against me. But the point is, 
I don't think I would have seen just how obvious it was if my friend had not spoken into my life. And that was just the safest of those examples I could come up with. There are other things I won't ever tell you from this pulpit that people have revealed to me about myself that I was like, oh, come on, cannot be true. And then, of course, later you're like, oh, it's so true. It's so true. I'm not suggesting that everyone who speaks into your life is doing it wisely or even speaking for God at all. There have been times where people acted like they were speaking for God. I'm like, be quiet. You're wrong. And sometimes that's true. So let's at least acknowledge that right up front. Not everybody who speaks into your life is speaking for God or speaking out of love. But I've also discovered that most people don't need the extra drama of saying hard things to you or me. When's the last time you thought, my life is just too comfortable and happy. I'm going to get in someone's face and say something they're not going to want to hear. And then I'm going to sit there while they get angry at me. I'm going to do that. I'm just so bored. How would that be for a nice day out? When's the last time you daydream about doing that for a pastime? See, we don't like being the bearer of bad news. We don't like saying hard things to people. It's not comfortable. It's intensely saddening for us. But you know what? Here's what I've learned is that in most, not all, but in most cases, it's the people who will take the risk to say that to you that are, in fact, your truest friends. Everyone else just rolls their eyes and goes, write it out. The jerk will stop acting like this in about 10 minutes. Just leave it alone. It's not worth the cost to bring it up because they will punish you every time you speak to them. Just leave it alone and they will stop after a while. That's the way most people deal with a difficult person because it's easier and because, frankly, they don't really care. They've got to be around you great, but they don't have to be around you often. But it's the people who actually take the risk who are probably your truest friends because they knew a storm would come but they opened their mouths on behalf of you and of God. The the Apostle Paul had a really, really close relationship with the Christians in Galatia. When he planted that church, he planted it when he got very sick, and they nursed him back to health, and he preached the gospel while he was recuperating. And he had this rich history, a very intimate history with them. But then those Christians came under the seduction of some false teachers who were teaching some very bad things. And Paul began to teach against that. He wrote letters to them saying, you got to stop listening to these guys. I know I'm far from you right now physically, but they are misleading you and it will cost you everything if you believe what they're teaching. Well, his friends in Galatia rejected his counsel and they made things very personal. They weren't just rejecting his advice. They were rejecting him. And listen to these powerful words Very rarely does Paul let out his personal feelings, but here he does. And in Galatians 4, 16, he says with his plaintive heart, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Is that really how it's going to be? That because I told you the truth, you count me among your enemies now. And, And what he's trying to say is, do you not remember who we were to each other? The story we shared. Our history matters. We were good to each other once. We loved each other. We told the truth to each other. And now that I'm telling you something hard to hear, will you call me your enemy? Because I dared to tell the truth. That blows me away. That Paul let his guard down. And some of us have been on both sides of that equation, haven't we? 
We've rejected friends who said things we couldn't hear. But we've also been rejected for going to the trouble to say what someone else was not ready to hear. I need to get a move on, so let me move to my third point. And I couldn't come up with a good word. First his word, then his people. But this is where God gets a little, perhaps, I hate to use the word, but maybe he's a little impatient. He's like, you know what? I can't wait for this guy to open his Bible. And I don't think there's anyone in his life who cares enough, so I'm going to flip on the lights myself. It's what we call um, crisis exposure. (laughs) I don't know what better way to put it. It's this feeling of getting caught red-handed, and the thing you've been hiding is now out, and you've got to deal with it. In his first letter to the, the Christians in Thessalonica, Paul wrote about the second coming of Jesus. In chapter 5, he describes it this way. He says, For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. And here's the part that kind of gets to me. Is he says, before he comes very quickly, here's the state of people on the world at that time. When people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, Life is good. It's fine. There's nothing going on. Then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin. And there will be no escape. What he's saying is there are people who are living in darkness, have not walked into the light of the gospel. They don't know the truth about their own souls, their own spiritual condition. They don't understand how dark their deeds and their hearts are. And yet even such people can be lulled into a place of security and peace. They can say of their lives, there's nothing wrong, life is good, we are good, and nothing bad's going to happen. And then the return of Christ will come, and for many on that day, it will be a jarring wake-up call. It won't be a welcome invasion into their lives. It'll be a sudden moment of clarity, followed immediately by a sudden moment of great regret. Now, that's the way Jesus is going to re-enter the world one day. But I believe, short of his second coming, he still does this on a regular basis in individual lives. I think it is the mercy of God that many Christian leaders who are living lives of duplicity and lies, they were living sin, hidden away. And our headlines are filled with such stories. I think it is the grace and mercy of God that such men get caught. Because if they stayed hidden, everything they were doing would become magnified. It would hurt more and more people. But by being outed, unwelcomed, uninvited, just by having the lights flipped on against their will, God catalyzed a process in their life they would not have walked into on their own. Hiding is easy, isn't it? It's so easy. And sometimes we find ways to be comfortable in our hiding and to defend it and to argue for it. But sometimes God says, enough. You are losing your life in hiding. I'm going to turn on the lights. I've been praying lately that people addicted to porn will get caught in the act. That they'll get walked in on, embarrassed, exposed. Because that addiction is killing your soul. You don't even realize it. Something's got to get done, and every attempt you've made to fix it yourself hasn't worked. I want everybody who's having an affair to be found out. Everyone who's harboring secret hatred 
to be discovered. I'm praying that God in his mercy would turn on the lights in the lives of those who are dying in their hiddenness so that he would initiate something that they won't for themselves. That out of the shock of being exposed, a work would begin in their lives. Paul says later in that letter, you guys, you Christians are not in darkness so that that day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. Let me wrap it up this way. God is wanting to turn the light of truth on into all the places of darkness, hiddenness, denial, and deception in our lives. In places where we don't even know the truth about ourselves, he wants to turn on the light of truth there too. But when he turns on the light of truth, how we respond matters a great deal. Most mornings, and I apologize, Elijah, I didn't talk to you ahead of time about this, but it's not that embarrassing. Most mornings, In the winter months, at 6.30 a.m., when Elijah has to wake up, it's dark still at 6.30. And what I usually do when I wake him up is I flip on his light. Now, I don't know how this happened, but Elijah somehow has the brightest light in the whole house in his room. I even like, oh, my gosh, it's so bright. It's so bright in his room. And most mornings, his reaction is, Dad, turn it off. And he crawls back under the covers because it is... Very unwelcome when you're cozy in the darkness in a warm bed. And that light, it's like a searchlight from, at some border checkpoint. You know, it's like, it's like that. But some mornings he really surprises me. He just gets up right away and he sits at the edge of his bed. And then like a, a robot, he just starts getting dressed for the day. I'm like, wow, that's interesting. Some days the light makes him scurry like a roach in the kitchen. <laughs> But some days he faces it. He leans right in and goes, it's the start of the day. What are you going to do? And I feel like, and maybe I don't know, we should chart this sometime. I feel, I feel like those are his good days. Those are the days that get started off to a, a, a good beginning. When God shines the light on you, the response you make will determine so much. I think most of us, our instinct is to shun the light because our eyes aren't accustomed to it yet. But if you open your eyes and stare long enough, the light will adjust, your eyes will adjust, and you will see clearly in the light. Remember that on the night of Jesus' crucifixion, two men who acted and spoke as loyal friends betrayed him that night. One was named Judas and the other was named Peter, and they both broke Jesus' heart. When their betrayal was revealed, not just to others, but to themselves, and they realized the full weight of what they had done, both men responded to that light, but in very different ways. Judas, in shame and despair, hung himself in a field and took his own life. Peter accepted Jesus' invitation to return. He humbled himself, he repented, and he was fully restored. God does not shine his light into our hiddenness to embarrass us or to hurt us. 
but always to rescue us. Always to rescue us. That place you're hiding is no place to build a life. And you're going to be more joyful and more full of life if you come out. Let's finish this way. Remember our little story of David and Nathan? And Nathan says to David, dude, shut up. You are that man. And to his credit, David went on to confess to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, yes, and this is the beauty of the gospel. The Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. Please remember that I'm not saying everybody who's tried to say stuff to you was right or spoke for God. Okay, that's the truth. That's a hard truth. But I can say this reliably. Most people who make the trouble to talk to you are very likely moved by something that comes from God. And even if the way that a messenger has spoken to you or me has been unwelcome and unwise... Could it be that even so, despite their failing, the God who loves you is trying to break through somehow? If you're living in a place of hiding, just a dark place you don't want to come out of, where you say, leave me alone, get out of my face, just back off. God is calling you out of that place. Let him shine his light in your life through his word, through his people, or even through the flipping on of the light switch. He wants to do it to rescue you. I want to invite you to bow with me in prayer. I'm going to confess to you that this message is largely the result of a year where I have been challenged disproportionately. It's weird. This year... A lot of people have spoken into my life, man. (laughs) And that's usually my job. I'm like the one speaking into everyone's life. But this year, a lot of people have spoken into my life. And I'm going to be the first to tell you I didn't like it very much. I fought back a lot. I used my gift of words to wound others who tried. And I'm ashamed of the way I reacted in many cases to the loving risk some people took on my behalf. And some of them were just dummies, but most cared. But looking back now, I realize God did use them. And I am emerging out of some very dark, hidden places. I didn't even know I had hidden places. I really thought I was an open book. God knew different. Praise be to God that he cares enough about us to never stop pursuing us. I'm going to just pray for us, and then I'm going to ask the praise team to lead us out in a song. God, we thank you for the relentless way that you pursue those who belong to you. And Lord, we admit that sometimes in our hiding place we feel safer, more comfortable. But I thank you, God, that you know better than we do, that we cannot build our houses there. 
You're drawing us out of the darkness of our own caves of hiding. And you're shining your light into our hiddenness. We welcome you, Lord Jesus, to come. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, to come. And shine the light of truth on the places we need to see. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.